So we've been preaching through Ephesians for the last uh, few months uh, since early October, and uh, so the last, and we're nearing the end of the book right now. So the last few weeks we've been preaching about uh, fun topics such as marriage and parenting and work, and uh, so the topic this week is Satan and demons. <laughs> so there you go. So if this is one of your first times here, it's like you picked a very exciting time to show up. So um, now the reason why uh, we're preaching through that is because. Uh, we're just, that's the next thing in Ephesians that gets talked about. So one of the benefits of um, uh, preaching systematically through a book um, is that uh, you're really forced, sometimes you're really forced to like uh, talk about things that uh, we're tempted to skip. So and that's really beneficial for like the process of growing in the gospel and making disciples, which is our vision here. So, so let's pray and then we can jump in. So God, um, just like Hannah was saying, um, to you, just uh, I pray that you'll speak through me, and just uh, that your spirit will just really make clear um, uh, what your point is in the passage, and um, yeah, and just like how we can really apply that, God. So I pray you'll just make it um, beneficial and practical. Um, yeah, and we really need you for that. Even when like passages are simple and fun, um, man, we really need you for those. And when passages are difficult and everything, we need you for that too. So yeah, you're the common denominator with that, and we love you. Amen. All right, so imagine that a husband and wife go to the theater to watch a play at the Grand Opera House in downtown Dubuque. It's a Friday night, it's a full house, it was hard to get tickets, and the atmosphere is thick with anticipation. Except for the husband, who is a bit of a caveman when it comes to the arts and going to the theater. The curtain gets pulled back, and there's a simple set design with two actresses talking in character, back and forth with witty banter. At the end of the scene, the curtain closes. Mucus music. (laughs) That would be a bad play. Music is orchestrated throughout the building, and when the curtain opens again, the scene has changed, and the actresses have different clothes on and are joined on stage by a few other actors. There's a different set design along with some pretty real a pretty realistic sunset in the background. Each subsequent act is marked with a simple but quality set designs, smooth transitions of various actors and actresses, and not having any noticeable hiccups as the play builds in anticipation to the climax of the third act. However, the caveman husband isn't impressed. At the beginning of the third act, the husband leans over to his wife and whispers, I can't believe how simple this play is. The actors just seem to be walking in and out. They aren't even, are they actually getting paid to do this? Anybody with half a brain could work and direct an uncomplicated show like this. The wife ominously raises her eyebrows at her husband. She's been in plays before and knows what's going on behind the scenes. And the wife is right, like usual. Unbeknownst to her caveman husband, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. The stage manager is shuttling actors, back and, actors and actresses back and forth with precise timing with a slender margin for error. Workers backstage are furiously assisting actors and actresses with makeup, hair, and costume changes. People are constantly going back and forth, not to mention the precise coordination needed from the sound technicians for the sound effects throughout the performance. Not to mention people shining lights, the lights on the scrim 
at just the right time to produce the simple but beautiful backgrounds for the audience to see, including that sunset. And of course, the numerous stage handlers that are moving sets on and off the stage at just the precise moments. All of this is organized chaos behind the scenes without the audience even noticing the depth of its orchestrated complexity. There is a ton going on behind the scenes. <coughs> Meanwhile, the husband leans, leans again over to his wife. I can't believe these people get paid to do this. Looks like they're not even trying. The wife leans over to her husband. Honey, she gently says to him, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than what you think. And the wife is right. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. So what we can so when we go to a play, what we see up on the stage, that's only a fraction of what's actually going on behind the scenes. And and the same point that the wife is gently making to her husband, kind of sorta in a lot of ways like that's the same point that Paul is trying to make to us in the next in this passage in Ephesians 6. And what he's trying to then the point is that Paul's trying to make is there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than what we think. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the against rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in verse 10, when Paul says, finally, this is the culmination of like, the entire book that he's been going through just slowly. When he says, be strong in the Lord, he means like, this is, uh, it's pretty complicated here, be strong in the Lord, which is different than be strong in our own power. It's like rest on our own understanding. It's just like, you can handle it. You're in control. No, no, like be strong in the Lord and his power, not ours. Put on the full armor of God. So we're not going to be getting into the verses right after this where it really talks more specifically about what that means. Brandon's going to be preaching about that next week. And put on the full armor of God so, you, full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And the assumption that Paul is making in there is there, there is scheming in the spiritual realm that is orchestrated by someone named the devil. For our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When it says rulers and authorities and against the powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, like that's all basically talking about the same thing. It's talking about like demonic stuff that's going on behind the scenes, and, and Paul is basically saying in this passage, like, like, just so you know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes than what we think. So my first experience being exposed to this passage uh, was in college. So I think I was 20 or 21 years old. I think I was 20. Um, so I was having a nuclear conflict with my friend Carrie. Um, 
So Carrie was the first, one of the first Christian friends that I ever had in my life, and we were just having this really epic conflict. I was so angry at her, and she was so angry at me. I was so hurt and frustrated with her, and she was so hurt, like, um, she was so hurt and frustrated by me. I mean, it was a pretty epic conflict, and long story short, um, I had a friend, another friend named Paula, who... I mean, Paula was just really wise, and she was older than me. She was more mature than me. She was more emotionally mature than me. She was more spiritually mature than me. I was a really young and new Christian, so, um, so um, yeah, Paula was really, really great. Like, she just gave me a lot of, like, wisdom and insight over the years. So, um, so Paula and I were trapped in a car together. We were driving somewhere, and I don't know. It's, that's what you do in college, isn't it? So, um, so we, were, we were in a car driving somewhere, and um, I didn't. I don't think I even talked about my conflict with Carrie with her at all. But it was through that conversation in the car with Paula that um, this passage, Ephesians six ten through twelve, just naturally came up. And you know, and Paula was just really talking about it in like a non weird way, and just really, you know, just mentioned that. And um, I was a really young and new Christian, like I mentioned. Like I had never read that passage before. Um, but through my conversation with Paula, something really clicked for me. Like, I think my struggles against flesh and blood. I think my struggles against my parents. I think my struggles against my friends. I think my struggles against my professors. Like, I think my struggle is against my own personal issues. And I think my struggles against Carrie. And in some ways, that is true. But according to this passage, this passage forces us to really just wrestle with something that's going beyond, behind the curtain, like beyond, like in backstage. That my struggle isn't ultimately against any of those people. It's ultimately against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I remember soberly reflecting in that moment uh, with Paula in the car. That I was just thinking to myself, like, man, like, when it comes to my conflict with Carrie, I think there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than what I think. So from a practical standpoint, uh, the, that realization was a game changer in my conflict with Carrie because even though it didn't magically and instantly fix my conflict with her, it really helped me turn down the temperature in my just in my on my end it's just really just turned down the temperature and it it just gave me the perspective to really clearly think clearly just put the focus I could actually think clearly and put the focus on how God wanted me to own my part of the conflict and not demand justice for how she had hurt me it was a game changer because I realized that there was a something I didn't really understand and I didn't really need to understand all the intricacies of it you know but there was a demonic spiritual agenda that wanted me to refuse to act in line with the gospel in my friendship with Carrie. So long story short, I, didn't, I never told Carrie, like, hey, Carrie, I think that there's a demonic agenda that's encouraging us to dig in our heels, because that's just weird. Like, in the heat of conflict, you just don't say that. <laughs> um, but, um, but over the next several months, um, Carrie and I were completely reconciled because um, God really used this passage to help me think clearly about what was going on behind the scenes. Because of, according to this passage, 
there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than what we think. So when it comes to talking about Satan and demons, a lot of us have legitimate and ob- ob- objections and hang-ups about this topic because it's not typically how we think about life in general. Um, we're used to only thinking about like what goes on like in our lives on stage and not what, what goes on behind the curtains or anything. Um, so some of us are like, man, like you actually believe Satan and demons actually exist? Like really? You actually think that? Because like believing in God is one thing, but like when you go that far, like really? Um, so, and that's a good question because like one of the ways that um, has really helped me to process that is asking myself the question, um, how much of reality can I observe purely with my five senses? You know, because there's limitations to this analogy, but even with something like the invention of the microscope, you know, because like Maggie, for example, my daughter, like she got um, a microscope for Christmas and you can make slides and she wants to do this like actually before the Super Bowl and like, I don't know, there's not really much living outside that you can put a microscope. But but even with the invention of the microscope, that has helped us understand that like there are limitations to what we can observe like just with like, just with the naked eye, with our senses, you know? Because like, I mean, there are subatomic particles of subatomic particles that like we're pretty sure they exist, but like we just haven't come up with the technology to really like just like absolutely just observe and document every part of reality that there is. There's limitations to that analogy, but because the point is that how much of reality can we just naturally observe with our senses? And could there be other aspects of reality that we just can't observe? So, you know, because one of the overarching themes of the Bible is that there are aspects of reality that, like, and spiritual realities that, like, we just can't readily observe with our senses. So, furthermore, there are even Christians who love believing in God, um, but they have very little room in their theology for something like Satan and demons. You know, it's like, well, I mean, maybe they exist, but they don't have any meaningful influence in our lives or anything like that. It's like, that's just weird. Um, so there was a movie in the, made in the late 90s, which is my era, um, uh, called The Usual Suspects, which is not the kind of movie you pick for family movie night with your kids. Okay. So, uh, so you, The Usual Suspects, um, so the premise of the movie was that there was this ultimate bad guy out there named Kaiser Sose. Kaiser Sose. He was just so, like, the most evil dude that you could ever think of. And, uh, but the... You know, everybody thought, like, oh, man, he is just so bad that he's the devil himself. But the kicker was in the plot that, like, nobody could know, nobody knew if Kaiser Sose was actually real or was he a myth. It's like nobody, because nobody had any proof, you know. So the protagonist in the movie is this guy named Verbal Kint, who um, uh, played by Kevin Spacey, and he's got a crippled hand, and he's got a crippled leg, and he's just this really unassuming guy. And so Verbal is being t- interrogated by the police for the entire movie about whether Kaiser Sose is actually real and all this kind of stuff. So, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, and this isn't a spoiler, it was made in the 90s, okay? So, um, um, it turns out that Verbal Kint is actually Kaiser Sose. And the movie ends when Verbal nonchalantly vanishes before the police figure it out. So, in the last line of the movie is Kevin Spacey ominously saying, 
that the greatest trick that the devil ever played is convincing the world that he doesn't even exist. You know, that's good theology. Don't get all of your theology from movies. That's a bad idea, okay? But that's really good theology. Um, and, and, and kind of sort of like, that's the point that Paul is trying to make in, this, in Ephesians 6. Like, your struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's like, there's more going on behind the scenes than what we think. So on another level, people often ask, um, how can God have a personal enemy? Cause, like, isn't God kind of powerful enough to not have those kind of enemies? Because, like, that's just weird. So, um, so there's a theologian named Wayne Grudem who teaches at a seminary down in Phoenix where it's warmer than today right now. So, so this is what he says about this. So he says that demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. Their passion and goal is to destroy the work of the gospel in the world, including the work of the gospel in your life and mine. So think about the work of the gospel in your life and think of the work of the gospel in the people around you. So that's what he wants to destroy. So um, Satan and demons, like they aren't equal with God, which is important to know because typically when we think of an enemy of someone, we think that they're just like the good guy, only like they're just the opposite. So it's like, oh, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, or Kylo Ren and whatever the protagonist girl's name was who had the lightsaber in the woods so like she like oh it's like good versus evil and like oh it's like who's gonna win like we're in the woods we're lightsabers i don't know who's gonna win it's like it's not like that with satan god and satan so imagine that there is a giant who is standing outside of the best western hotel so that giant is fast he's agile and he's 35,000 feet tall. Fast twitch muscles. He's just like fast. He's not one of these slow giants. He's just fast and agile. And at the feet of the 35,000 foot giant is a slow, overweight possum. Okay? So that's the difference between God and Satan. Okay? It's just like, wow, one is really big. One is a slow, overweight possum. We had a slow, overweight possum sitting, like living under our shed in Platteville. So like that's... That's Satan compared to God. And so, and like if the fast and agile giant wants to step on the slow, overweight possum, he totally could. The question is, why doesn't he step on the possum? So the Bible doesn't give us an answer to that. Um, Personally, I don't let what I don't know screw up what I do know. And what I do know is that Scripture makes it clear that demons are limited by God's control and they have limited power. So the story of Job, there's a story of Job in the Old Testament. Um, there's a book called Job. Um, and that makes it clear that, like, in that story, that, like, Satan could only do what God gave him permission to do and nothing more. So there's this tiny little book in the New Testament named Jude. Um, it says that, like, Satan is kept in eternal chains, which is pretty graphic. Okay. Um, and spoiler, spoiler alert, like my wife, for example, it's like when she write, when she reads a book, she always re- when she starts a book, she always reads the le- end of the book because that's just how she rolls. Okay, so like spoiler alert, I read the back of the book, the Bible, and um, he steps on the possum eventually. Okay, so it's like Satan loses. And so, so the Bible doesn't use also the Bible doesn't use Satan and demons as euphemisms for evil. Like man, my. Um, I'm having a devil of a time at work. Okay, so like 
Now it's like scripture refers to him as a real actual being. He's not a guy with a horns and a red suit, which <laughs> that would be embarrassing to wear anyway. It's like he's a real spiritual being according to scripture. So and one of the questions I've always I've always wondered about um, is how exactly so if you know scripture does say that like okay like I'm going to be tempted to inf- be influenced by those spiritual forces. Okay. So if that's true then how does that happen? Because it's not like it's, it's not like some demon sits down with me and like has a conversation and tries to convince me of something. You know, it's like, how does that process work? Maybe it's just like the inner engineer in me who's just like, what's the process? I'm really interested in that. So um, the Bible doesn't give an answer to that question. And the writers of scripture don't seem to think that's a super important question. I think that's an interesting question, but the writers of scripture don't seem to think it's an important question. Um, instead, the writers of scripture seem to rest on the simple premise that lies will be communicated in some way, and I'll be tempted to believe them. So that must be good enough for me to know. So... Now, the thing is, like, when I was having my, conf- my conflict with Carrie, I think, like, um, long story short, I think what I did, well, I don't think I know what I did, like, I just, I took those three verses right there, and I just took them out of context, and I just focused, like, on those three verses right there. And uh, there's this rest of the book, <laughs> you know, that the rest of the book in Ephesians, like, really needs to, like, be looked at if we're going to understand these three verses. So you can't be ripped out of context. You know, for example, um, you know, the last couple of years, I've been trying to get my daughters into rap music, so to varying degrees of success. So, um, so Maggie and Gracie, those are my two youngest. Like they listen to uh, this rapper named Lecrae. So, I'm trying to get them into the kind of rap music that like isn't disrespectful to women and just like doesn't think illegal stuff is cool. Anyway, so they listen to Lecrae. So this summer, like uh, Maggie and Gracie were listening to Lecrae in their in their bedroom, and Maggie comes out and says like. Lecrae just said, that's stupid. You shouldn't be saying that. I'm like, all right, let's look at the lyrics, whatever. So, so we look it up, and it's like, I can't remember what the exact lyrics were. So, uh, so we listened to it, and what Lecrae was actually saying in the context was, um, so uh, your, you know, the, the most important thing about you isn't the clothes that you wear and the car that you drive and just like what other people think. And he's like, that's stupid. You know, I'm like, you know, Max, I was like, Max, you know, that is kind of stupid. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't call people stupid, but like, it's pretty stupid. And he's like, she's like, oh, okay. So like, I'm teaching her about context of that. So anyway, so the same, and people do this, a lot of us, we do the same things with these kind of verses right here. Like, let's look at these three verses right here. But no, there's a bigger context to it. So Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, and Ephesians 4. We'll look just briefly, take a drive-through look at those. So Ephesians 1 starts out with Paul expounding on how we've been chosen by him to belong to him because of his glorious grace and how, and how that results in praise and glory to God because life is meant to be about him. It says that we've been predestined according to the plan, to God's plan, who works out everything, not some things with the conformity of, to his will. And when it says everything right there, um, he's, he's referring to everything, which includes, like, the will of Satan and demons. You know, because, like, God is the one who's sovereign, and he's in control. 
So in Ephesians 1, Paul makes the, the first passing reference to Satan and demons in verse 21 when he says that his, incom- his meaning God's, God's incomparable power raised Jesus from the dead, and now Jesus is the supreme Lord over all rule and authority, power and dominion forever. So what he's getting at in, that, in those verses is that Satan and demons, they lost. <laughs> like, he doesn't give, like, Paul doesn't give attention to the slow, overweight possum. He gives all the credit and attention to the 35,000-foot giant who is Jesus, who is powerful and supreme and Lord. That was a drive-through of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 2. So Ephesians 2 makes another quick passing reference to Satan and demons when it says that they're at work in the lives who are the, of those who don't belong to Jesus through the gospel. But the important thing to notice is that Paul blows by it and, and instead glowingly and at length talks about the incomparable riches of God's grace that are expressed in his kindness to us through Christ because it's by grace through faith that we're saved so that nobody can boast, only God can. So again, he mentions the slow, overweight possum in passing, but he doesn't give it much credit or attention. Ephesians 3. So Ephesians 3 makes another passing reference when when he says his, meaning God's, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, in other words, Satan and demons, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what he's getting at with that is that the way the gospel gets lived out in the life of a local church, like this, is like Jesus scoring a touchdown and then spiking the ball in Satan's face as he lays on the ground completely defeated and humiliated. So again, Satan and demons aren't presented as something as something to disproportionately focus our attention on, and they're not presented as something to be scared about. So Ephesians 4. So Andy's going to put the, this on the screen right here. So lastly, we're going to look at Ephesians 4. Uh, verses 20 through 24. And this is just an example. Brandon preached on this a few weeks ago. So verse 20. So that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And the way that you do that is to renounce all the worldly claims that Satan has over your life because you've been given authority to do so. You should be paranoid of the territorial spirit lurking at your workplace, and you should command all the spiritual forces and angelic armies to fight on your behalf. Is that what it says? No. No. Are you paying attention? That's not what it said. Um, what it says is verse 24. Instead, it says to be made new, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So growing in the gospel is not about like putting this legalistic overemphasis on like demonic stuff or anything like that. It's like it's about applying the gospel to our lives and like putting our focus on God himself who is a 35,000 foot giant. Like he's God, he's sovereign, he's in control. And like there isn't like this huge emphasis on weirdo emphasis and really legalistic 
um, about Satan and demons. And just as a side note, just as a hopefully just a pastoral comment, like there is there is like a lot of books out there and things like that that just put this weirdo legalistic emphasis on Satan and demons. And um, the people who are into those um, books the most are people who often um, are tempted to find their identity not in who they're tempted to find their identity in control. It's just like, it's all about us. It's all about us. It's just like, I need to control all the variables. And like, um, we just don't find that kind of emphasis in scripture. And, um, and in saying that, and especially giving that example, I don't want to give you the impression that um, it's mature and spiritual to not pay any attention to the reality of Satan and demons, because that like goes against Ephesians 6, what we're talking about. Because if you read Ephesians 4, when, Ephesians 4 just gets really practical about just like all these ways to, to grow in the gospel and just like put off the old self and put on the new self and it just like gets really practical. But like even, and it doesn't mention like Satan and demons at all. Like it's just like really focuses on that. Except suddenly in Ephesians 4.29, Paul just like out of nowhere just like says, oh, um, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. It's just like, it just seems like when he's getting practical and everything, he's like, oh, just, just so you know, like, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than what you think. Just so you know. Like, that shouldn't be your emphasis, but just so you know. So the practical question is, um, in saying all that, um, how can you tell if there's more going on behind the scenes than what you think? So for, just from a real practical standpoint. So uh, the most helpful way that I've found to get practical about that kind of question is to think about it in terms of um, ordinary demonic and extraordinary demonic, which might sound weird, but like that's the, that's the way my brain works. Anyway. So, so let's start with uh, extraordinary demonic. So um, these are just some of the examples in the Bible about extraordinary demonic. So torment, physical injury, false miracles, like those... Um, like, there's scripture references up there. If you want to look it up sometime, that would be a very exciting Bible study for you to go through and everything. But, um, so people who are being tormented by demons, like, there's physical injuries associated with it, and there's even false miracles that happen via a supernatural power that is not from God. And some of you may be thinking, like, wow, that sounds pretty extraordinary. It's like, yeah, that's why it's extraordinary demonic. You just, it's not like, oh, it's Tuesday. Oh, yeah, false miracles at work. Like, you just don't see it very often. But, like, those are examples in Scripture. It's like there is those kind of extraordinary things. So this is contrasted with ordinary demonic. And these are examples in the Bible of demonic stuff that's just, like, more common and ordinary. So um, so one of those examples, like, before we get to the first one, um, like, Ephesians says, uses an example of ordinary demonic, which is, like, don't let the sun go down by down like why you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold it's like oh it's like even in something simple like simple if you want to call it simple something simple like our anger it's just like oh there, there might be more going on behind the scenes of my anger than what i just think of you know that's an example of ordinary demonic so uh sexual sin in marriage first corinthians 7 5 so first corinthians 7 says that in marriage, there can often be a temptation towards sexually sinning against your spouse, and it explicitly says that Satan has a lot to do with the, Satan has a lot to do with that temptation. So, 
from a practical standpoint, when you're tempted in any way, in that kind of way, um, you should be thinking to yourself, like, you shouldn't be just be thinking, like, oh, this is my this is my issue, and I need to be in control. It's like, okay, well, no, no, it's like, there's like, I need I need to submit myself to God and apply the gospel to like the lies that I'm believing, and um, well, it's like, oh, there might be more going on behind the scenes with this than what I think. So next example that scripture uses, bitterness and selfish ambition. So bitter bitter envy and selfish ambition. So James 3, 14 through 15 says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Like in the old school NIV, it says, like, of the devil. So when we sense the bitterness and selfish ambition are being harbored in our hearts, like, it's really beneficial to, for us to think about, like, okay, how does the gospel apply to this? Like, how, what, what lies am I believing that I need to replace with truth? Like, how is, where is God in this? And it's helpful to think about, okay, maybe there's more going on behind the scenes with, like, my bitterness and selfish ambition than what I think. Lies, John 8. So John 8, uh, just in a really graphic kind of way, uh, Jesus is talking about Satan overtly, and he says that Satan lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language, and he's the father of lies. That's pretty intense. So when we're tempted to believe lies about ourselves, not giving people the benefit of the doubt, giving people believing the worst about people very easily, reading between the lines, like, oh, what do they really mean, and believing untrue things about God. Um, that's when we need to think to ourselves, you know, it's like, okay, like, what lies do I need to replace? What, what lies am I believing that I need to replace with truth? And how do I need to come to God and submit to him and just really, like, help me not to believe this stuff? In addition to that, we should also think, like, okay, maybe there's more going on behind the scenes, <laughs> Like, just with, like, the lies that I believe than what I think. Accusation. So, Revelation 12. So, when I say accusation, I'm not talking about, like, workplace dynamics where people are accusing each other. Um, I'm talking about how in Revelation 12, 12, it describes Satan as accusing people day and night. So, what are some lies and thoughts about yourself that run through your head and have an accusing tone to it? What are some lies and thoughts about yourself that run through your head and have an accusing tone to it? So you may not be able to identify those. Uh, a good friend or, or your spouse could probably identify those better than you. So that's probably something you should ask them. So when we, when we have like those kind of like thoughts that run through our head in an accusing tone. It's just like, okay, like, God, help me to identify the lies that I believe. Help me to replace them with truth. I need your help with that. How does the gospel, like, the gospel of, like, who Jesus is and the what he, because, like, Jesus is the one who gets to determine and tell me who I am, that I, the most important thing about me is that I belong to him. Okay. So, like, how do I believe that? Help me to believe that. And in addition to that, um, you just really have to, like, 
when we sense that kind of accusation, like those kind of thoughts ran through our heads, we really need to think to ourselves, like, maybe there's, that's, maybe there's more to this than what I think is going on here. There's more going on behind the scenes. So lastly, not belonging to Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4. So 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this age, and when it says the God of this age, what that's referring to is Satan and demons. So the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Now some of you might be thinking, that's a little extreme. <laughs> it's like I'm blinded from, com- from coming to Jesus and from seeing the gospel seen as valuable and just like worth it um yeah and uh yeah that's what scripture says there so if you've been considering following jesus or you're nibbling around the edges of maybe surrendering yourself to him or you're just consistently not ready for that um i would really encourage you to consider thinking about like is there something going on in the spiritual realm that's fueling my resistance to that um, you know, and I really think like some of us should cons- soberly consider that. And because let's just assume that is true, just for the sake of argument, let's just assume that's true. Like, if that's true, like that should make you really mad. The solution to that is to push through your resistance and tell God that you want to come to Him and you don't want to believe. You just want to see the gospel as valuable and like, who are you, God, really? like what is the gospel and like what does it have to do with my life and just like yeah and just push through that so um when we do communion every week um that's our time for response so here at river city um when we do communion like uh so first corinthians um, 11 talks about how Communion is just like our time to remember Jesus. It's time to reverently remember him and just orient our allegiance to him. So that's why we do communion every week, like in a non-punch, um, you know, punch the time clock kind of way or just some, some kind of religious ritual. It's our time to respond to Jesus. So communion doesn't make you right with God. It's about reverently remembering him. So there's a weightiness to it with that. So here at River City, um, the bread and the juice are in the back of the back table back there. Um, so we do dipping, so you just take the bread, you dip it, and then like you take communion that way. So the bread represents Christ's body, like the, the juice represents Christ's blood. It was broken and shed on our behalf because like um, because he's valuable and he saw us as valuable to like save because it's all about him. So it's our way to re- so the, yeah. So the bread and the juice really symbolize the gospel. So in, since your response to God is through communion, is ultimately between you and God. That's why, like, um, that's why, like, we have you take communion on your own, so we don't have someone serving it to you. So the worship team, like Ryan and um, Becca, like, or excuse me, Ryan and stuff, like, they're going to be like, um, they're going to be playing three songs. Anytime during those three songs, you can come out, go up in the back on your own to like do communion, take communion on your own. So like in between that time, like, we just, I just really encourage you to just uh, think and pray on your own about just like. What does, like, submitting yourself to the gospel really look like and just, like, what your hang-ups are with that? And just, like, because even if we do belong to Jesus, we do have, like, hang-ups when it comes to, like, just really surrendering ourselves to God. And so we aren't going to systematically dismiss rows in order, but um, whenever you're ready for that, just really encourage you to do that. 
So, and also I'll be in the lobby if anyone wants to talk or pray about anything.